So, on a scale of one to ten, how forgetful would you say that you are? Now, you don't get to rank the person next to you. I'm asking you, on a scale of one to ten, how forgetful are you? Like, let's say ten is, you're already going, okay, what was the question? And, and, and we'll say that five, on a scale of one to ten, five is sometime this week, you... You already did that thing where you walk into another room to get something and then you get there and you do that like, what am I, what am I doing? You're standing in, in your bedroom or in the living room or in the kitchen going, what, what, what am I doing here? So that's a five. And then let's say seven, that sometime in the last few days, similar to Jessica Fisher, you were looking for your car keys and then someone in your family pointed out that they were ready in your hand. So how, how forgetful are you? Uh, one of my all-time favorite forgetful stories, I actually asked permission to share this one. Uh, it happened to this gal that used to be on staff here. Her, her name was Sarah. Some of you will know her. She's this delightful, hilarious person. Her Facebook or her Instagram feed is worth following just because she's so stinking funny. Well, several years ago when she was here on staff, there was this particular lunchtime where we were all kind of getting ready to move off to our lunch meetings, and Sarah was suddenly frantic. She couldn't find her keys. And, and that wasn't exactly a new experience with Sarah. So, so we kind of engaged in helping her and kind of were like, man, this happens all the time. I don't know that we can help you. So we kind of helped her look. And, you know, when the dust settled, we couldn't help her find them. And she said, well, maybe I'll go back to my car and see if maybe they're there. And as she later told the story, I mean, we're, we, we have offices downtown, as you may or may not know. We don't have parking passes. We're cheap that way. So she was parked several blocks away way past the Grand Street Theater where we're at right now in a residential area. And she said as she got close to her Toyota Forerunner, she realized even then that she had found her keys. And the reason she knew that is as she got close to it, she could hear it running. <laughs> so, what, what she, what she, so she remembered uh, to park her car. She remembered to put her car in park, but she actually forgot to turn the car off and take her keys with her. And actually, this week when I was texting her, and was like, hey, can I tell that story? And she's like, yeah, sure. And if you want, you can also tell the one about that time that I forgot to close the door. <laughs> Where she, she literally got out of the car and left the door open. And then when she came back at the end of the workday, it was still open in the middle of the street. So forgetfulness, it's this, it can be funny. Sometimes it's trivial. Sometimes it doesn't really impact much other than just our own pride and our sense of you know, like that we know what we're doing, and sometimes it provides good comic relief for others, but, but sometimes it does matter. Uh, sometimes it does have consequences. Uh, picking on myself, I guess, I was thinking this week of times that I forgot things, and when I was in my early 20s, and my friend John Switzer and I, I led the high school, he led the middle school at this new church that we were on staff at called Harvest, and both he and I had been a part of these great intern programs, and part of our intern programs is both of us had been on, on student retreats that involved chartering buses or renting multiple vans. We were part of a trip once where 15, 15 passenger vans drove students and leaders to Minneapolis in February. We were part of other trips where multiple buses took students to Jackson Hole. So we had, we'd done the kind of charter trip thing, but we'd never organized one ourselves. And... Our first year getting to do that at Harvest, we decided we were going to charter a bus and take a bus full of middle schoolers and high schools and leaders to Denver for a particular conference. And so my job was securing the reservations for the charter bus, and I had done all that, and I even remembered that one of the things my friend Brian taught me was that the day before you're supposed to leave, be sure to call the charter bus company and just make sure that you're still on your radar so they show up. So I, I called and I said, hey, just making sure we're still on for Denver, and they said, yep. 
And so the next morning, I, I showed up a few minutes before the bus was supposed to get there. And, and then about the time the bus was supposed to get there, there was no bus. And then a few more moments, 15 minutes or so passed, and suddenly there was parents and students, parents trying to drop off their student before the parent went to work, and leaders and no bus. And then finally it was time, the time when like wheels were supposed to be rolling down Main Street in the Heights and still no bus. And I had that, that feeling, you know, where suddenly you realized maybe it's you. And so we were in a, a Burger King parking lot, which was adjacent to where our church offices were. And I, I remember walking across the parking lot, up the stairs into my office, pulling the file out of, the, out of my drawer that had the contract for the charter bus. And I didn't have to read very far before I realized I'd forgot something very important. And that was to double check the date on the contract. Like when I called them, I talked about leaving, I, I can't remember, let's call it April 5th. But on the contract, it said April 12th. So I did call them the day before and say, hey, are we still on for Denver? And the reason she talked to me like I was a weirdo is because in her mind, we weren't leaving for another week. So I panicked. I called my friend Brian, who was the executive pastor, who's a great leader. He quickly uh, called the bus company and did the things that good leaders do. And, and about an hour later, the owner of the bus company showed up in a charter bus with the bus and the trip happened. So when it comes to being forgetful, there's different layers of importance or, or consequence to it. But here's the question I want to ask this, this, this morning or this afternoon or whatever it is you're watching or listening. And that's this, what if, what if part of what COVID-19 is doing is it's exposing that, that we as humans, uh, that we, we, we're prone to forget certain things. And listen, the, the last thing I want to do is in any way trivialize the pain, the suffering, that the, the stakes are very, very high. But I do wonder if if part of what's happening here is we, we are being reminded, maybe ironically, that we're prone to forget some really important things. And if that has any truth to it, part, part of where I take some comfort from that is, part of what I love about the Bible is that it reassures me that, that much of what I experience and much of what we experience, we're not experiencing for the first time, that other people also experienced things like this, and other people also tried to navigate this with wisdom and with God. And it doesn't really, to me, matter how exactly you categorize the Bible, but in my mind, what we have is this brilliant book written by real people who had real experiences with a real God, and the opportunity we have is to learn from those. And to me, it's fitting that one of the very first stories in this book is a story about humans who forget important things and what happens when they do. In Genesis chapter 2, so uh, I would argue the second story of the entire narrative. In verse 7, it, it says this, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. Now, here, here's my question. Is what, why did these ancient peoples, why, why did these ancient people, whoa, what value did they see in reminding themselves that they are made from the same materiality of, of, of everything around them? That, that elementally, they are the same thing. Like, what, what value is there in reminding ourselves that, that though we talk and they don't, and though we drink coffee and cows don't, that, that we're not as different 
as we might think. What's the value of this? And one of the things I think that's really important to recognize is that contextually within the ancient Near Eastern world, part of what's happening here, I I would think, is a leveling. Because remember, this story is written to people who have been told they are less than human. And they're governed and led by people who are more than human, who, who are gods themselves. And there's something about this story that says, no, we're all, we're all dirt. We're, we're all made from dirt. What, what's the value of this? And then it keeps going. And breathe. So then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man, sorry for the gender-specific language there, but I think we all know what's going on. It's, it's, this is that era. And the man became a living being. Second question, what's the value why did they find it important to, to remind themselves that outside of something that they themselves don't contain, they're just a lump of dirt? Like, What's the value of, of recognizing that, that humans are no self-starters? That it takes life from outside of ourselves? And I wonder if it starts to get to this realization that, that there's something in us Something that animates us, something that makes us alive, something that compels us, that frankly, we, we don't own it. We don't, we don't possess it. We didn't, we, we didn't create it. Like we, we're on the receiving end of its value, but it doesn't belong to us. Again, there's a leveling. Kings who were God, people who clearly were not, why would these people go, no, no, no. The bad news is none of you are God. And the good news is all of you are animated by God. Well, the story doesn't stop there. In fact, this is just actually the very beginning of this story because what happens next is that infamous moment that involves people in the garden and a serpent and fruit and all those things that we typically refer to as the fall, even though the Bible never refers to it as the fall. What we have is this moment, this decisive moment where where people stray from what's best. And we can talk about that in terms of trust. We can talk about that in terms of shame. There's lots of different frames to give this. But if you look at the heart of the narrative, watch what goes on here. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. Interesting, isn't it? That the story starts with people, your dirt and the life that's in you doesn't belong to you. And then it moves from that point to what? A story about people who it seems are are compelled by this invitation to not experience their dirtness, their mortality. Listen to the way it continues. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So a story, dirt, divine breath, it's not yours, moves to this idea of, wait a minute, we don't want to be dirt. We we don't want to be human. We don't want to be mortal. We want to be God. And then, The next move is God shows up and it's kind of like, hey, when you miss curfew, there's going to be some natural and some external consequences for that. And God shows up and there's this series of things that happens and you can read about that if you want. But listen to how that section of the story, and this is really kind of the end of the story. By the sweat of your face, you shall not eat bread until until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. And then look at the refrain, you are dust and to dust you shall return. Now for thousands of years there's been this debate, is this part of the curse or is this just part of the story? 
And I guess I want to suggest, and I agree with Walt Brueggemann in his suggestion, that, that this couldn't possibly be part of the curse. Because the story starts with people being told that they're dust, that elementally, that materially, they're, they're the same as the stuff around them. And then it moves to this compelling idea that they can be like God. And in the end, God goes, no, sorry. You're stuck being human. You're dirt. Animated by the divine breath. Now, now here's, to me, the, the question worth asking. And I think... COVID-19 begs us to ask it. What, what's, what's the consequence of forgetting that we're dust? And what's the consequence that forgetting, of forgetting that, that we don't own the breath, that we are animated by something outside of ourselves, that, that we're stewards, not creators? You know, you know that, that thing that you do when you're leaving the house and it's like one of the worst feelings where you're leaving the house and then you have that, like, I just had it this morning, like, oh, I'm forgetting something. And you stand on the front step or you sit in your car and sometimes you have more time to think about it and others are just like, ugh. And sometimes in that, like, just doing the ugh thing helps you go like, oh, my sunglasses, and you run inside. And other times, like, you're sitting on an airplane headed for Salt Lake and then you realize, dang it, I forgot my swimming suit. You know that feeling? I mean, it illustrates a little bit that, that forgetting different things at different times has different consequences. What's the consequence of forgetting that we're dust? I wonder, and I think the text begs us to, to see it this way, I wonder if one of those consequences is that when we forget that we're dust, that then, then we forget that we have a responsibility to the garden around us. That life is not something we're just supposed to hold on to. That, that part of what it means to be human in this story is that, that you, you, you have a responsibility to the garden in which you sit. It's not yours. There's this brilliant, brilliant moment in that film that Tom Hanks and Stephen Ambrose put together years ago, that series of short films on HBO called Band of Brothers. You can actually watch it on Prime right now. Some of my family and I are re-watching it. But there's this... There's this brilliant moment, and if you're not familiar with the context of that story, it's about, the I think it's the 101st Airborne who were instrumental in helping the Allies defeat Nazi Germany in World War II, and one of their, their first big move was they parachuted behind enemy lines uh, before the Normandy invasion, just hours before the Normandy invasion. And, and there's, a, there's a particular private who, when he parachutes in, his name is Blythe, and he parachutes in, and he gets separated from the rest of his troops. And, and he doesn't respond very well when, when, when he realizes that. He just kind of hunkers down. He doesn't actually engage in the fight. He, he, frankly, he just, he just hides. And then, fortunately for him, when the sun comes up, later on, the rest of his troop finds him, and they kind of drag him with him. But he never really engages in the battle. He suffers from these horrendous panic attacks. He, he, at one point, they're... they're he, he's so nervous because of what he's experiencing in war that he actually suffers from temporary blindness. I think part of his design is, and maybe the reason why I like him is he's so relatable. There's just this sense of like, how did anybody do that stuff? And Blythe isn't able to do any of it. And there's this moment where, where he's back on the front lines. He still hasn't engaged in the battle. He's had some panic attacks in his, in his hole. And, and there's, a, there's a battle looming, and he finds himself next to this, this soldier whose name is Spears. And, and Spears is everything Blythe's opposite, or at least he is by all appearances. Spears was very successful during the Normandy invasion. Uh, he seemed 
very capable as a soldier. All the other soldiers looked up to him. In fact, there were times where he seemed to take his brutality too far, and there were guys that were afraid of him. And there's this moment where, where Blythe, he's walking with spears, and you can just tell Blythe is terrified of, of what's about to happen again, this battle that's coming. And, and, he, and he looks at Spears, and he says, Sergeant Spears, when, when I landed on the day of Normandy, I didn't actually even look for my troop. He goes into this kind of confession. He says, actually, I just laid in a ditch and I hid. And it's, you can tell on some level he's looking for advice and on another level he's just needing to acknowledge to someone like, I can't do this. And Spears, Spears looks at him and he says, Blythe, do you know why you hid in that ditch? And Blythe looks at him and he just, with this incredible reluctance, he says, because I was scared? And Spears says, Blythe, we're all scared. But Blythe, you hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But Blythe, the only hope you have is to acknowledge you're already dead. And until you accept that fact, you will not be able to function as a soldier needs to function in battle. Now, of course, we could over-dramatize that, and I, frankly, I hate comparing anything to what those soldiers went through, but what if part of the danger of forgetting that we're dirt is we can inadvertently forget that if the goal is not to die, it's an absurd goal? That what if part of the reason these ancient peoples kept returning to, confessed that they would forget it, and kept returning to this idea of remember we are dust, remember we are dust, remember we are dust, is because it was a way of reminding them that the goal is bigger than mere survival, that, the, that they have a vo vocational responsibility to the garden in which they sent. And it sat and in the same way that Spears is saying to Blythe, Blythe, you're so worried about saving your life that you're not doing your job. I wonder if... Forgetting that we're dirt causes us to forget that we have purposes bigger than just staying alive. Listen, I, I think part of what's happening right now, and I think this has the potential to be a brilliant thing, is suddenly, suddenly what it means to fry chicken at Safeway is different. So suddenly what it means to be a teacher is different. Suddenly what it means to, to be a medical professional, a nurse, a doctor... A, a respiratory therapist, an administrator, suddenly what it means to be an electrician is different. Because we're confronted with this fact that the narrative that we've lived in for so long, I know I have, suddenly what it means to lead a local church is different. I mean, part, part of the realization that I'm going through is, listen, all of our training was how do you be cute and how do you be funny and, and, and how do you lighten the mood and suddenly none of that is what's important. Suddenly, it's not just about making a living. Suddenly, it's not just about making sure that you can fund your hobbies. Suddenly, it's about this realization that, that you were put in the garden with a role to play. And if you just cling to life, you'll fail to play the role. There's a second thing, and I think this one for me has been even more helpful. I wonder if the other cost of forgetting that we're dirt is is we easily forget then that, that our life depends not upon ourselves, but upon the moment-by-moment moment daily generosity of the Holy God. 
Remember, we are dust. God breathed into them the breath of life. There's this confession that comes with it, isn't it? That all we can do is live within the grace of this moment. In Psalm 103, there's this incredible, incredible psalm. And in verse 14, the psalmist says this, for he, the he here is God, for he knows how we were made. He remembers that we are dust. Now, for those of you that nerd out over Bible study and original language, the really neat thing here is that we were made, it's the same Hebrew word as God formed them from the dust. He remembers, God does how we were formed. He remembers that we are dust. What's the psalmist confessing there? God knows how weak we are. God knows that we can't do it on our own. God knows that we are no self-starters and that without his divine breath, we are but a lump of dirt. And listen, listen to what happens. I want to read the verses immediately before and then after that section. Verse 13, as a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. Why is God compassionate? Why is he merciful? Because he knows. He knows we're weak. For he knows that we were made. He remembers that we, were, we are dust. Verse 15, as for mortals, their days are like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. What if what happens when we forget that we're dust is we forget that life is dependent upon the divine breath? That really the only thing we have to cling to is the generosity and grace of God. Listen, what if remembering that we're dust is a way of confessing we're, we're all scared? None of us can see the future clearly. But to rise from bed and go, remember, we are dust, is to remind ourselves we have a job to do. We have a people to serve. We have value to bring. And to, to look squarely into the face of God and, and say, Lord, I, I, I can only live within the grace of this day. This, it's the way Jesus' prayer ends. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What is that? It's, it's, it's a confession, as I understand it. It's, a con, it's, a, it's, it's permission to say, God, I'm weak. Morally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, please, God, give me what I need for this day. What happens when we remember that we are dust? And how might that drive the way we step into this experience? Not, not necessarily without fear, but without being controlled by it. Who, who, who's in the garden with you? What, what, are the, what are the chances that we have to be reminded that we're dust? I, I'd like to pray for you, God. Um, Lord, you, you know how much we would love to be sharing space with people in this space right now, and yet we also take solace in the fact that you're not a God of the temple, you're, you're, you're not a God of specific space, 
but that so much of what your son accomplished was that your people are your temple. Uh, that, that the kingdom of God is the intersection of, of your presence uh, in this present moment. And God, it would be absurd to think that we can make one decision or pray one prayer or believe one thing and thus live every moment for the next week or month or year in your presence. But what we can do, God, is lean into the moment-by-moment grace that you provide. God, I pray for my friends who are terrified. I pray for my friends who uh, aren't quite there. Lord, that you would clarify for us what, it, what our responsibility is to the garden in which we sit. That, that, that the, the rescue would be less about just sheer rescue and more about finding purpose within these moments. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.